are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Would you stand as we join together to hear God's word to us? Our reading today is from Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Did he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Clearly remember the first Thanksgiving. There we go. The very first Thanksgiving where I was invited to sit at the adults' table. Did you have this experience? You grew up in a, in a household that at uh, family gatherings, Christmas, Thanksgiving, whenever there was a meal, you would separate the family into two tables. Well, I very clearly remember my promotion year where I was promoted to the adults' table because it, it was a big deal in my dad's, on my dad's side of the family. Uh, with my, my grandparents... My parents, all of my dad's siblings, and all of their spouses, there were already 24 people at the table. And so for any of the 20 cousins to be promoted a level was like a big deal. You had to knock down walls to make room. Uh, So I had a cousin who was one year older than me. When she got invited, I knew the next year was my year, and the next year it came, and it was awesome. I got to sit at the adult's table, participate in the adult conversation, hear the adult jokes, find out that my, like, five-foot-tall, petite, cute grandmother can swear like a sailor. That was a shock. And I got to, like, be in part of the family now because I'm an adult. I'm at the adult table. I'm, I'm in. Like, no more am I relegated to the outer darkness where the kids are put. Like, I'm in the light. I'm in. If you've been following along in our study so far as we've gone through the book of Galatians, you might realize that there was a similar dynamic at play in the church in Galatia between the Jewish sort of adults table and the Gentile kids table. Jewish Jewish believers in Jesus, Jewish Jesus believers had set up kind of their own adults table and excluded the Gentile believers from it. The Gentile Jesus believers weren't grown up enough yet. They hadn't cleaned themselves up enough yet. They didn't know how to behave properly, like, you know, 
food laws and those dietary restrictions, who you eat with, keeping the Sabbath, circumcision, all of that stuff. So they weren't allowed at the Jewish table yet, at the adults' table. And Paul's writing this letter because when he sees that happening, he's saying, look, unity in the church is being threatened by division around superficial identity markers within the family of God. The unity of the church is at stake. And so Paul's been arguing in this letter that, no, the the Messiah has only one family, not two. That's what the gospel teaches us. The Messiah has only one family, not two. So there should be only one table, not two. And he's going to continue this argument by blowing the minds of Jews and Gentiles alike, by, by arguing that they are both part of a bigger story than they thought, a bigger story that goes back further than Moses and the giving of Torah, the giving of the law, the covenant law. It goes back even further than that to Abraham, where they're united through faith. See, it's not that you're welcomed at the adult table when you've grown up enough, or that you're welcomed at the the Jewish table when you've cleaned up enough. It's that all our are welcome, Jews and Gentiles alike, to the same table when they realize they're all kids of the same family, the family of Abraham. Right, that brings us to Galatians 3, verses 1 through 9. Paul's going to begin his argument that there's only one family, only one table, only one church by exploring the common characteristics in this family of God. Here's how I know that there's only one family. You guys have some similarities. First, you all share the same inheritance. You're members of the same family because you share the same inheritance. And second, you're members of the same family because you share the same name. You guys are part of the same family. You share the same inheritance and the same name. And among some, and few other things as well. But I'm just going to dig into these two from these nine verses. So let's jump in. We're going to start with the family inheritance. What is this inheritance that they share together? As you turn to Galatians 3.1, it's on page 12 of your scripture journal if you've got one. Or uh, on page 1155 in that black Bible under the seat in front of you. Uh, Keep this in mind. So Paul is shifting his attention now off of the Jewish Jesus believers onto the Gentile Jesus believers. He's already said at the end there of chapter 2, if the death and resurrection of the Messiah redefines how Jews think of themselves as part of the family of God, it's not about keeping Torah, all 613 Old Testament laws anymore. Well, then now in chapter 3, how does the death and resurrection of the Messiah redefine how a Gentile becomes part of the family of God? Because the problems in the Galatian churches all stem from their lack of unity around the gospel. They don't, they don't all understand that they're all part of the same family, the family of faith. So, jump in. Chapter 3, verse 1. Paul starts off a, a little bit strong. Oh, foolish Galatians. Can you imagine if one of the pastors here wrote a letter to the church and somewhere in the middle were like, you guys are idiots. That's probably how they would feel reading this. This foolish Galatians. And he asks the first of many questions. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He says, you as good as saw it. Saw Jesus dying for you. Now, who, who bewitched you? Who fooled you? He's kind of coming at them with this background level of emotion where he's saying, like, I was literally just there. 
I was just teaching you this stuff. How did you so quickly get tricked or bewitched or fooled? And so he goes on in verse 2. Okay, I have one question for you. He's already asked one. I have one question for you. Here it is in five forms. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, when the Holy Spirit came on you, was it because you were keeping Torah or because you heard the message and you believed? Which was it? Verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected? Are you now being completed in the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And, And the mic drop question, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law because you've been keeping the Old Testament law faithfully or by hearing with faith, by hearing the message and responding with faith? Which is it? In other words, Paul is saying, look, with everything that happened to you since you heard the good news message and responded in faith, the pouring out of the Spirit on you, the miraculous healings, the works of power in your midst, your ability to bear up under persecution and suffering, the the new life and love and virtue you found in following Jesus, did any of that begin happening because you were engaged in the synagogue following the Torah? No. His answer is no. None of that happened because they were following the law perfectly. It happened because of faith. Now, I've called these, these first five verses this section where we see the family inheritance because we need to zoom out for a minute and understand sort of the whole story in which Paul is writing this letter because Galatians is steeped in Exodus language. Exodus language. You remember the story of the Exodus? Uh, The Jews were in slavery in Egypt, and through acts of power and deliverance, God led them out of slavery to the promised land. And as a way of of guaranteeing for them or, or picturing for them the guarantee that, yes, I will lead you into the promised land, he led them by his spirit, a pillar of cloud during the day, pillar of fire at night. See, Jews understood as long as they followed the presence of God, as long as they followed the Spirit of God in front of them, that Spirit of God was, you could say, a a down payment, a guarantee that they would inherit the promise, the territory we now call the promised land. Paul is using that same sort of big story, that big narrative to say, look, a similar thing is happening here. When, when you receive the Spirit, you've begun by the Spirit, you've been supplied with the Spirit. He's saying, look, the Spirit of God is indwelling you. And where the Spirit of God shows up, that's how you know there's a down payment. You're going to inherit the promise. You are going to receive what God has promised. The the Holy Spirit is the down payment of that fulfillment. He says it explicitly in his letter to the Ephesians. So here's, here's his point. He's saying, dear Galatian Gentile Jesus believers, if you have the Spirit... If you've seen God work in powerful ways, and, and then, then you've already received the down payment on the great new creation inheritance that God promised to Moses, and before him, he promised to Abraham. If you share in the inheritance, then you're part of the family. 
If you share in the same inheritance, you're part of the same family. So if you share in that inheritance, the, the presence of the Spirit, and you're part of the family, but you weren't keeping Torah, you weren't keeping those Old Testament obligations when you became part of the family, when you received the Spirit, the down payment on that, then you become part of the family completely apart from keeping the Jewish law. Are you following him? He's probably clearer than I am. If you've received the Spirit, you're part of the family. In other words, he's saying, guys, you already have within you evidence that you are new Exodus people. You're on your way to receiving the full inheritance of new creation. And that, that evidence, that spirit, didn't come because you were keeping Jewish law. It came because you heard the message, you responded in faith. You heard the message and you responded in faith. And that's a lot like someone else in your spiritual history. That's what brings him to verse 6. It's a lot like Abraham. So, his argument continues. He's already argued that Jews and Gentiles alike share the same family inheritance. Now he's going to argue that they share the same family name. It's another way of saying they share the same family characteristics. They act the same as their father. Sometimes when I'm being particularly annoying, uh, like over-engineering a home improvement project so it costs twice as much as it should and takes three times as long to complete, uh, my wife will roll her eyes and say, you are just like your dad. Which isn't necessarily a positive comparison in that context when it's, you know, one of your little annoyances. But in, in this context, the comparison is a lot more positive. Uh, Paul's looking at them saying, hey, when you heard the message we preached and you responded in faith, that's just like Abraham. You're just like your dad. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, you see those two connecting words right there at the very beginning where it says, just as Abraham believed God? Uh, now, those connecting words could be taken in a, in a couple of different ways, and depending on how you understand them, it might change how you, you punctuate the, the verses. Punctuation isn't part of the original Greek text, so uh, it's up to us to kind of read it and go, is that a question or is that a statement, and where does the question end and the statement start and things like that. In, in my scripture journal, um, I've actually moved the question mark to the end of verse 5 and put the comma after verse 6 because I think a new argument is starting in verse 6. I'm, I'm not making this up, by the way. It's not unique to me. Probably about a third of uh, Bible translations are, are going this direction that, that I'm suggesting. But anyway, here's the point. You could understand that those connecting words just as to, to say, okay, Paul's saying something like, hey, when you heard the message we preached, you responded with the, uh, to it in faith, you know, that's all it took for God to welcome you in. That kind of, you know, kind of reminds me of Abraham. I guess he's a good example of the same sort of thing, right? He heard a message, he responded in faith. Actually, I think what Paul is doing is tying the Gentiles' story of coming to Jesus into a deeper history farther back into the family than they themselves were aware that they could trace their lineage. He's starting a new idea in verse 6. 
starting a new argument, saying Jews and Gentiles alike are, are both part of the family of God because they're both part of the fam family of Abraham because they both have the same name, the same characteristics as their father, Abraham, uh, namely faith. So let me read the verses the way I punctuate them. You know, the same way that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, so you too need to know that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And again, we have to kind of step back and zoom out to make sure we understand the whole story that Paul's referring to here. Do you remember the, the Abraham story? In short, God had promised Abraham that the entire world, all nations, would be blessed in Abraham, and then God explains to him how that promise is, is going to work. And Genesis 15, where you could go to, to read this in more detail, starts with Abraham complaining to God. He's asking, okay, you've promised me I'm going to be a blessing, or in me all nations will be blessed. Well, how is that going to happen if I don't have like my own natural heir, my own child? How, how will all nations be blessed if I don't have any descendants? And God says, good question. He takes him outside, says, look at the stars. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, right? And then God says to Abraham, okay, I, let me show you, let, let me show you a vision to guarantee this. I want you to take a whole bunch of animals, cut them in half, arrange them in this sort of corridor. This is very foreign to us because we don't do business contracts this way. It says, but line up the animals like this, and then God puts Abraham into a deep sleep, the kind of sleep that God always uses when he wants to reveal something to someone. And then he shows him a vision of, of Abraham's descendants inheriting the promised land. Okay, so there's two promises here, worldwide, or almost like infinite family, many as the stars in the sky. I mean, I know it's technically a finite number, but whatever, it's a very large number. And you will inherit this land I've promised to you. Okay? And right in between those two actions, there's a verse that Paul quotes here in Galatians 3. Genesis 15, verse 6, Paul quotes it, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that quotation is doing double duty in Paul's argument. Paul is pulling out both implications of the phrase in Genesis and applying them to his argument here in Galatians. So it's saying two things. First, it's saying Abraham heard the promise from God that you will have you know, family as large, as numerous as the stars in the sky, heard the promise from God and responded with faith. And God looked at that faith response and said, that's what I was looking for. It's faith in my promise that makes you right with me. And then he shows him the vision. But there's a sort of a broadening of the application of that statement as well. Because it's not just the individual status before God here that's in question, but also the individual's membership in a broader community. So second, by quoting this verse, Paul's saying, you know, Abraham heard the promise from God and responded with faith. And God looked at that faith response and said, that's what people in my family look like. They have faith. Your faith is what it takes for you to enter into my family. You're part of 
the justified ones, the righteous ones. Remember the Jewish mindset at the time that Paul was writing basically divided the world into two groups. You had the sinners and the righteous. And by quoting this verse, Paul's saying both, this is how you become righteous and this is what makes you part of the community of the righteous. So hopefully we can see what Paul's arguing here. Abraham heard a message. He heard a promise. He heard good news. You will have children like, look at the stars. And he responded in faith. And God welcomed him into his family because of that faith. And Paul's quoting this and looking at the Galatian uh, Gentile Jesus believers and saying, it's the same for you. You're just like your dad. You heard a message. Good news. You responded in faith. So here's what Paul is arguing. Anyone who hears the gospel, the good news message about Israel's Messiah, and responds with faith is part of the family that God promised to Abraham. You don't get into the family by keeping Torah, by keeping the covenant law. Maybe you get into Moses's way by doing that. But to get into Abraham's family, the bigger family, the further back family with more history, you get into Abraham's family by faith. See, Paul expands the argument and explains it more in verses 8 and 9. He says, in, in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel, good news beforehand to Abraham, saying, and Paul is now quoting from a little bit earlier in the Abraham story, Genesis 12, where God promised Abraham, uh, all nations will be blessed in you. So here's the quote, in you, in you, Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed. And Paul reads that that worldwide blessing in terms of membership in the family of righteous ones, Abraham's family, and says, this is what God meant all along, that God will justify the Gentiles by faith. So, okay, in other words, if the whole world is to be blessed in Abraham, in meaning as part of Abraham's family, then Abraham's family can't be limited, limited to just those who have the Torah, the Old Testament covenant law, and who follow it, because not everyone has it, and not everyone can follow it faithfully. In fact, no one can follow it faithfully. If all the nations are going to be blessed as members of Abraham's family, then it must be on the basis of something other than keeping Torah. God, God must be declaring non-Jews to be part of the family, justifying them on some other basis. So the question becomes, well, what other basis could there possibly be? Well, that's the argument. Probably the same basis that brought Abraham into God's family in the first place. Faith. So, Paul's conclusion, verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Actually, the Greek is even more emphatic. Paul is saying, so then, those of faith, they, these ones, the by faith people, they are the ones who are blessed along with Abraham. Abraham, the man of faith. You see the, the new family name? 
It doesn't really roll off the tongue, but the new family name is of faith. Those of faith. Those who are of faith. Paul is saying to these Gentile Jesus believers, how do I know you're part of Abraham's family? You share the same name, the same defining family characteristic. You are of faith. Just like Abraham, the man of faith. You're those of faith. You're those who are of faith. And he's tying this whole big story together, telling them the very existence of Gentile believers in Jesus, non-Jewish believers in the Jewish Messiah, is a fulfillment of the promise God made all the way back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 to Abraham to give him a worldwide family. He says, when you Gentile come into the Jewish family by faith in the Messiah, you're you're coming into Abraham's worldwide family. This has been God's plan all along to give him that worldwide family and the worldwide inheritance by you coming to faith in Israel's Messiah. And with all of that sort of complex argument and putting the the narrative of the Galatian believers into the context of the whole Old Testament and the promises to Moses and to Abraham before him, Paul is doing all of this and making this, well, this is just the beginning of a long convoluted argument because he's trying to make clear one very simple thing. You are part of the same family. So why are there two tables? You're part of the same family. So why are you split down the middle? It simply doesn't make sense. Now, with all of that, we may ask ourselves, why would Paul go go to all this work to try to convince Gentiles and Jews that they're part of the same family? Why not just have, like, first Jewish church of Antioch and the second Gentile church of Antioch? Why not split them up? Because he's absolutely committed to keeping the family together. When we were kids, and my brothers and I, there were five of us, when we would start fighting, my mom would often appeal uh, to something I think she felt uh, was deeper than our divisions and more central than our conflicts, something that was more important than whatever we had just done to hurt one another. She would appeal to a deep sort of sense of identity within ourselves, and it went something like this. Stop fighting this instant. Have you forgotten that you're brothers? To which we would calmly reply, it's because we're brothers that we're fighting. Come on. No, but you see her point, right? What go- what's the point of these little things that are dividing you? Don't you understand there's something so much deeper that unites you? You are brothers. That's, that was my mom's point. That's Paul's point. When I was a kid going to those Thanksgiving dinners, we were, and we still are, uh, you know, all part of the same family, but we created divisions, artificial divisions between the family, relegating some to the kids' table and some to the adults' table, and there was an obvious value difference between the two tables. If you don't believe me, just look at the plates the adults used versus the ones the kids used, right? We split the family in half because our divisions were more important than the fact that we were all part of one family. The same thing is happening in the Galatian church. They're elevating superficial identity markers to the same level as deep family identity 
markers. They're elevating Jewish and Gentile to the same level as those of faith. See what they're doing? They're taking superficial differences and elevating them to the point where the superficial is dividing and the deep can't keep them united. This is how divisions always come about, whether we're talking about families or neighborhoods or workplaces or communities or churches. And out there in the broader world, it it makes sense. It's understandable when there's nothing deeper than our superficial identities to bind us together, nothing deeper to cling to than our national identity or our ethnic identity or our socio-political, cultural, economic identity, our gender, whatever, then it makes sense to clump and cluster around those things if those are the deepest things about us. But if there's something deeper than all of those, if there's an identity marker not tied to any one nationality or ethnicity or gender or socioeconomic class, then that identity marker can unite people. It has the power to unite people across all boundaries and divisions. In theory, at least. Not often enough in practice. But what if? What if it did? What if it did and it did here? What, what if Faith Church were known as the place where anyone who has faith in Jesus is welcome? Where our superficial identity markers aren't an excuse for how we divide from one another, but they're an opportunity for us to get to know and appreciate one another more, to grow in our own understanding of each other? What if Faith Church were a place where Biden voters and Trump voters could hold hands and sing the doxology together? without either one believing in their heart of hearts that the other one can't be a real Christian because they voted the way they did? What if Faith Church were a place where white Christians and black Christians and Asian Christians and Hispanic Christians and indigenous Christians and African Christians and on and on could worship side by side together, not subsuming our differences into some sort of minimally offensive porridge of a community, but celebrating one another's differences, delighting in one another's differences, learning from one another, not always insisting that things be done the way my culture does them. Or what if, what if Faith Church could be a place where brand new Christians and people who've been following Christ for decades could worship side by side together, where where everything that a new Christian still gets to learn and everything that an older Christian has already learned and now should be teaching don't separate us into different classes or into different groups where we get like the entry-level stuff and the stuff for really mature people, but instead we were together learning from one another, teaching one another, pointing each other to Jesus. What if Faith Church were a place where the masked and the unmasked, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, could come together to sing together? Whether you're wearing a mask or not, if you've gotten the shot or not, where that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that we are singing glory to the risen Christ by whom we are united in faith. What what if? What kind of a church would we be? What kind of a church 
would we be if we started pushing the tables back together? Where we push the Democrat table and the Republican table back together and we squish the libertarians in between. We push the tables back together and ate together and sang together and rejoiced together. If the men's table and the women's table came back together, if the kids' table and the adults' table were pushed back together, if the, the poor table and the wealthy table were pushed back together, if the, the white and the non-white tables were pushed back together, what kind of a church would we be? Where all those superficial markers didn't hold a candle to the consuming, uniting fire that is the gospel. Man, what kind of church could we be? Because Paul is driving at this point in these first nine verses and on through all the way to the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5. He's saying, look, you will never find this kind of unity as long as you are looking at someone else and only seeing difference. You will never find, we will never find a reason to push the Jew and the Gentile table together as long as when we look at each other, Jews see Gentiles and Gentiles see Jews. Until you both see, you've got the same inheritance and you're sharing the same name, you're both by faith people, then the tables never come back together. Now, all that doesn't mean that there there isn't some sort of kind of behavior standards we do have to talk about as a church. Paul's going to go there in the succeeding chapters of Galatians. But it's very often for some of us, it's very often easy for some of us to think, right, faith is what gets you in the door, right, but you, you only stay in the door as long as you're holy enough. And we're half right. In my wife's family, there's kind of this running joke. Uh, whenever one of us does something mildly annoying, uh, like pointing out how my father-in-law is balding at a very rapid rate, uh, then he'll look, he'll look you in the eye and in mock exasperation say, that's it, you're out of the will. Which is a funny way of saying, you're out of the family. Right, and it was, it, it's funny, and it was funny until one of us actually did something that got him kicked out of the family. A son-in-law, my former brother-in-law, uh, did something that eventually led to divorce, and now he's literally not part of the family, and he's literally out of the will. And so the joke is kind of like, oh, can we, can we still joke like that? Uh, it's, not, it's not as funny anymore. And see, when he did what he did, the family got around him and said, hey, you are part of this family, but this family behaves in a certain way. You're part of this family, but you can't both do anything you want and also be part of this family. There's some life change markers that come with becoming part of this family. And so what he did eventually pushed himself out. Paul's going to talk about some of those things later in the letter. Because here's, Paul is, in this letter, 100% concerned with unity around the gospel. But he's also 100% concerned with holiness, right living, because of the gospel. I want you in the family, and I want you to behave like, act like, live like someone who's part of this family. But where some of us would prefer to achieve unity in the church by mandating holiness from its members... 
Paul is more concerned with mandate or with achieving holiness in the members by mandating unity in the church. Stay together, grow in the spirit, learn from one another, and you will become together more holy. He doesn't want two tables at Thanksgiving where you push them apart so the adult's table can maintain holiness and the kid's table can, you know, maintain unity, destructive unity. He says, no, push those tables back together. Make a mess. Break the china. Because the family being together is more important than the family being apart and everyone behaving. So... What about us? What about us? Are we willing to to do the hard work of achieving unity, pushing the adult table and the kid table back together? All those different tables that that we divide ourselves into, all those superficial identity markers. Are are we willing to push the tables back together, mix it up, and let our unity drive us towards holiness? Would we rather go for holiness and just push away anyone who doesn't measure up until we're just left with ourselves. We're all members of the same family. I know it's true because Paul has said, hey, we all share the same down payment on our inheritance, the Holy Spirit. And we're all members of the same family because we all share the same family name. We're all just like our dad. We're the ones of faith. So when you look around the room at other people, what do you see superficial differences or deep unifying faith? What do you see? What do you see? Father, you've called us to look at one another and see people who have come to you by faith, who have have come to you because of faith in your risen son, the one who gave for us, who sacrificed himself for us in order to tear down all of these dividing walls, in order to rejoin these tables, in order to bring us together in fellowship and worship of you. Father, it's not until we see ourselves as most fundamentally people of faith that we'll be able to build a community around faith. So transform us, Lord, that we can transform the communities around us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.